Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Something to Talk About. I'm your host, Randy Wartelski, and I thank you so much for joining us this afternoon right here on the Nahum Siegel Network. Assault weapons, handguns, death in the most innocent of places. Ladies and gentlemen, you know exactly what I am referring to from just those few words. A few words that tell the whole senseless story of this senseless tragedy that killed children who barely knew how to spell their names. The tragedy in Newtown, Connecticut has sent ripples of shock throughout our region, throughout our country, throughout the world. The tragedy has spurred politicians to rethink their political positions on gun violence and mental health. And of course, there are our children. How do we talk to our children about things that are so difficult to talk about? And maybe possibly more importantly, how do we respond to them, to their questions, their worries, their concerns? With me today to answer these questions and open up probably many, many more questions is Dr. Alex Bailey. Dr. Bailey is a licensed school and child clinical psychologist who works with adolescents and families, couples and parents. He has spent over 15 years as a school psychologist in the Jewish day school system, working with students in lower, middle and high school and as a consultant in the classroom with teachers of all grades. Dr. Bailey specializes in the area of communication, classroom management, and parenting skills, and often works with parents and teachers of oppositional children to develop strategies to communicate expectations and increase pro-social behavior at home and in the classroom. Dr. Bailey also maintains a private practice in New Jersey where he sees teens and adults and works extensively with parents and families to improve communication and relationship management. Dr. Bailey, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So I have to ask you, uh, and, and for some people this, this question might be so, the answer to this question might be so obvious, but I, I would like to hear what you have to say about this. Why is this a tragedy that has affected people so deeply to the point where people who don't even know anyone from Newtown, uh, in fact, probably never heard of it, felt compelled to go there, to be there, to be outside at the funerals, to uh, lay wreaths and flowers and bring toys. Why, why is this a tragedy that has affected people so deeply? I think that the key word to answer the question is empathy. I think that when you look at the people who are responding to this tragedy, who are writing letters and visiting the site, um, posting their thoughts, what you're really seeing is people putting themselves in the place of the families that are going through this tragedy themselves. The nature of empathy uh, for adults in particular is the ability to really understand what someone else is going through. And I think for adults, whether they have children of their own, whether they have young nieces and nephews, um, that they are able to very easily picture what they would have to say, what they would have to feel, what it would, their experience, um, if they were in the place of these parents. And it's that intense feeling, um, and probably for many fear, that makes them want to come out and try to connect in some way. Right. I, I recently I read a little bit about this, where this article said something like, um, if you recall the shooting that happened in the movie theater during that midnight showing of, mm -hmm. of uh, the, the young, the dark young rises, whatever the movie was called. And, and somebody wrote, well, I would never go to that movie. Therefore that would never happen to me. And I would never have been in such and such a place. And that would never have happened to me. And I think that 
the sheer like senselessness of this is the fact that this happens in a school. It happens in a place where nobody would think it would happen. And that often makes people put themselves in that situation. I would take it one step further. Not only does one not think it would happen in such a place of innocence, but it's also a place that we can all relate to. Right. We all have been in school or have children in school. And so it's very easy to picture um, our children in danger in a place that we used to think was safe. And I think that uh, one of the interesting things that I've seen as uh, following this event was that the schools that I work with and the schools that I'm in touch with, um, almost every one of them put out letters to parents talking about, first and foremost, the security at the school. And many schools are looking now, doing another, taking another look at their, at their security measures because that's what hit home, is that we are all connected to schools in one way or another. And that question of the security of our children is what touches everybody. And that people are internalizing it and saying, how can we make sure that something like that doesn't happen here? Precisely. And, you know, I said earlier, as an adult, these things are so hard to swallow. What are you seeing? Because, you know, you work with kids all the time and you work in a school. What are you seeing from the kids? That's the million dollar question. And I think it's a fantastic question because the reality is, is that there isn't one answer to that question. Um, the answer depends on the age of the kids. We know, psychologically speaking, uh, the research for years that's looked at the way that kids think um, has shown time and time again that children develop through stages uh, where their brains literally change the way that they think, the way that they understand, the way that they comprehend, and the way that they speak. And so... Um, if you are a teacher or a principal or a guidance counselor in a school with young children, you're going to be dealing with very different issues uh, than in a, in a high school dealing with teenagers. So it, the answer to the question lies in where each person is coming from. I work in a high school. Um, what's interesting and profound, in my opinion, of working with teenagers is that they straddle the line between adulthood and childhood. We know, developmentally speaking, that young children lack the ability to really empathize. They, we call it egocentrism. To be egocentric is to really think of yourself. The world revolves around you. Now, in an adult, that's not a good thing. Right. Um, but with children, it's normal. It's how they think. And many parents would say that their teenagers live that kind of Precisely. egocentric life. We want that to, uh, to, you know, to go away as they get older, but it doesn't always. Um, and adults obviously have that cognitive ability. They have the ability to get into somebody's head, to understand what someone else is going through. Teenagers straddle that line. And what makes it challenging, I think, for parents and for teachers in dealing with teenagers is that sometimes teenagers are very sophisticated. And so we learn to expect a certain level of maturity from them. And then they'll be put in a situation where they almost regress and they act like little children and we're surprised and disappointed and we don't know how to react. Um, and the truth is, in the high school that I work, we, uh, we've experienced the gamut. So we had kids knocking on our door or talking in class um, about how they felt, uh, about this this. Uh, this tragedy in particular. And then we've had, I've had teachers come to me and say, 
my students don't even want to talk about it. They're not interested or they're joking about it. And so we have to be able to meet the kids where they're at, whether they're six or 16 um, or 26, frankly, and figure out how to help address the concerns that they're experiencing at that moment based on their understanding of the world around them. You talk about the egocentrism, so to speak, of kids, Mm -hmm. teenagers. Do you think they feel far removed? And maybe that's why they're not reacting so much? I think that that's... Like, does it feel far away? I think that that's exactly the definition of, or rather the opposite of empathy. When we develop the ability to empathize, we develop the ability to connect and to feel as if we are there. Um, For many children, this is not possible. And so they're removed from it. So, you know, you said earlier, you gave the example of the movie theater, the shooting in the theater. Um, It was very easy for even adults to say, I don't go to movies. Right. Right. I don't go to movies or I don't see those kind of movies or, you know, and um, it's much harder for the adults to say that around schools. Well, for kids, it's easy. The younger the child, the easier it is for them to say that's somewhere else. I can't relate. I don't understand it. It's not in my life. And as soon as we're able to remove ourselves, that gives us the ability for good and for bad to uh, to remove ourselves also from the from the intense feelings that would be generated. Yeah, we were talking earlier about the communication that went out from the schools. So I did see some communication from various schools and the underlying theme in the communication that came over the weekend, because remember this happened on a Friday, what came out over the weekend was the schools were asking parents to please talk about the tragedy with their children before they arrived back at school on Monday. Because it would be very hard for the kids to comprehend, to understand, to whatever, if they were to hear it from their friends on the bus or, you know. Um, I didn't really talk about it with my kids, to be honest. And I, I realized, actually, that we were, we were away for Shabbos Hanukkah and we were driving on Friday and I was listening to the news. And the kids were playing their various electronic games in the backseat and... It occurred to me that my 10-year-old who was sitting right behind me could potentially have been listening to the news. And I toyed with the idea of maybe turning it off. And But he wasn't like asking me questions or reacting in any way. And then I just sort of casually said to him at the beginning of the week, you know, did you hear what happened in the school or whatever? So he had said that they talked about it in school. But I didn't feel such a, a, a pull to talk about it with my kids, with my five-year-old, with my eight-year-old. What do you say to that? Should, should people talk about it if the kids are not talking about it? Or not necessarily just this tragedy, but, you know, quote-unquote bad things in general, things that might be difficult to talk about, topics that might be difficult to talk about, events, catastrophes. Should parents sort of preempt the conversation and talk to their kids if their kids are not experiencing it. What you just said at the end is the key point to answering the question, if the children aren't experiencing it. Um, One of the pieces that I think drove the advice of talking to your children before they get to school is that we know that young kids have unbelievable imaginations. They will make up stories in their head and get so sucked into it that they lose, they blur that line between reality and 
and and fantasy. That's why pretend play is so much fun to watch with them. Um, I had a, I had young patients early in my training where they wouldn't talk to me, and the only way that I could get them to talk was using a puppet. And as soon as I used the puppet, they went on and on. They had lost any sense that they were actually talking to me and had full conversations. How interesting. So it's, it's incredible, the power of imagination. The problem with that is that they can really make up some very scary stories. You know, you and I were talking earlier, and I gave you the example of a young child. You know, um, this happened in my practice where a young child got in a fight with the mom in the morning. And as the mom was leaving, the kid said, I hate you. And that was the end of that episode. Unfortunately, later in the day, she got into a minor car accident or something. And we had to deal with the fallout where the child created this entire fantasy in their head that they somehow caused it to happen. Right. So kids, they run wild. So the fear of the school is that these kids will come to school on Monday hear stories from their friends, some of it rumors, some of it based in fact, some of it, and who knows where their imagination is going to go. So prepping your children in that case can be very powerful as a tool to help them normalize it and to start to process it and talk about it. The flip side of that is we know that it also can be very um, frightening to children to introduce ideas to them that they aren't introducing themselves. There's an old psychologist joke where uh, little Billy comes home from school and he says to his mom, Mommy, where do I come from? So Mommy was hoping she wouldn't have to deal with this topic till he was a lot older. So she starts to hem and haw and stutter and try to explain what happens when you know a man and a woman and, all, and they love each other. And, and he looks at her and when she finally finishes and takes a deep breath, he looks at her and says... Oh, well, Tommy said he came from Chicago. <laughs> and it's it's like... Ba-da-bum. Right? It's about, do we introduce something that the child hasn't introduced themselves? And so, because to introduce a topic that isn't on their mind can be very, very frightening. And that's the hesitation. I think that that's intuitively where you were coming from in not wanting to bring it up with your children. And I think that ultimately it's a very important judgment to make. Um, which is why the advice that I give parents all the time is to wait and see what your child knows. So when your child comes home and says, you know, um, what does it mean that uh, so-and-so got hurt or so-and-so, you ask them first, well, what do you think it means? Because you then can take their language. I had somebody else in my practice once where the mother was bereft. She didn't know what to do. Because her child, this was also, I, I tend to get a lot of conflict in my practice. I wonder why people come to you. A little. <laughs> hopefully, because I can help resolve it. But a three-year-old, a three-year-old turned to, um, also was upset about something, turned to, turned to her father and said, I hate you, I hope you die. And the father turned in a moment of insight to the child and said, what does that mean that you hope I die? And the kid looked and said, you know, I don't know. And got <laughs> yeah. up and went off the play. Yeah. If instead, if the parent had said, how can you say such a thing? Do you realize I'll never be here? Do you re-? 
that introduces stuff that the kid didn't even think about. Right. So, so that becomes... But somehow the kid knew that that particular that that, sentence would be something that would affect their parent. It was a negative thing. Dying yeah. is bad. Dying right. is... But to fully understand and comprehend what it means, clearly the child didn't understand it. And, and I think that that becomes the point. Judging whether we talk to our children or not is more about figuring out what they know already and what they could potentially be exposed to. Um, and that becomes the judgment by which we should all be deciding when and how we talk to our kids. And, and what we should and shouldn't be, quote, shielding them from. Correct. We're talking with Dr. Alex Bailey, a licensed school and child clinical psychologist here on the Nachum Siegel Network in this post-Newtown tragedy world. And we're talking about dealing with tragedy and dealing with difficult situations and uh, life-changing events with our children. Um, we were just talking about, uh, you know, so sort of shielding our children and not introducing too much information that they might not necessarily know. What do you think about shielding them from visual images? I mean, I recall some very, very visual um, images that I had seen on TV after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were at a 9-11 assembly earlier this year and we we're talking to a group of fifth graders who... Um, Many of them either were babies or were not born yet when when it occurred. And what they will know is from pictures, you know, eventually. And, um, you know, I guess here in this specific Newtown tragedy, there isn't too much visual to see. But when you do watch the news, you see a lot of sadness. And a lot of adults have been glued to the TV. They've been watching the coverage on every single funeral and everything. And I wonder if, um, you know, if kids were to be around that kind of stuff, how, how do you think that that would affect them? Rule number one after 9-11 was we begged parents not to watch the news right. with their children. Right. Um, 9-11 happened the first year that I was working um, – on my own as the school psychologist of a school, not, not the first month another. of the first year, the first month of the first year. And it was, it was a lot to handle that, that, that first, uh, that was a trial by fire. Um, but it was, I remember very distinctly that top of the line, you know, the first thing we communicated with parents was you're going to be interested. You're going to be glued. Um, but images, visual is so much more powerful than any other medium. It's why, media is visual yeah right we know that despite our work on the radio today um the most powerful and most successful ad campaigns are visual campaigns um and so it's probably the single most important thing to be aware of is shielding our kids from disturbing visual imagery and what that means for parents and i think the take-home message when we say to parents, don't watch the news because your kids shouldn't be watching it, it's asking parents to hold back on their own impulse right. in the interest of their child. And even with the best of intentions, we as parents often get lost in that line. We'll all say that our children come first, that they are our primary, um, you know, uh, they are our treasures, you know, and they come before us. I always tell parents, you know, true selflessness really doesn't develop until you become a parent. Right. But um, despite that, you have to be very aware as a parent of what you're doing 
and aware of those times where your own needs are starting to creep into yeah, and cross the boundary into what your child needs. We're going to take a short break here, and we'll be back with some more discussion with Dr. Bailey right after this. Yeah, me. 
Welcome back to Something to Talk About. I'm Randy Wartelski here at the Nahum Siegel Network. And we're talking today with Dr. Alex Bailey, a licensed school and child clinical psychologist who works with adolescents and families, couples and parents. And we're talking about dealing with life-altering situations. Dr. Bailey, we, t- we were talking earlier about kids' reactions to any life-altering event, whether it be something as terrible as as the tragedy in Newtown, death, or um, something recently that many, many children in our area experienced with loss of, of their homes or loss of their items in Hurricane Sandy, even moving to a new home, um, any kind of life change. And very often people talk about the resilience of kids and they say, kids are so resilient, they bounce back. Do you really believe that kids are so resilient? I do. I do because I've seen it, and I do because the research points to it. What we've found with kids is that one of the characteristics of children's development is is literally the plasticity of their biology, the way that their brain is constantly changing, developing, forming new connections. Um, you know, part of what I do in the schools is work with kids with learning issues. And one of the hallmarks uh, of, of working with kids with learning disabilities is the idea that if one part of their brain is not sort of making the connections, we can train other parts of the brain to make up for it. And that's the nature of plasticity. I think that what gives kids this ability to be so resilient is the fact that their experience as young children, their experience of a trauma, the way they understand the trauma, the way they make sense of it, changes as they get older and as their brain develops. Whereas an adult will have a traumatic experience and that's their, ex- that's their experience of it, that's their reaction and their understanding of it, and that sticks with them forever. Kids go through constant changes in the way they understand it and the way they what look at it. What age do you think that starts to change? I would say that the the neurological research points to somewhere in late adolescence, early adulthood, um, is the point at which we sort of stop the the enormous amount of new connections in our brain and the way the neurons are are forming new relationships with each other. Um, so it's really all the way through through adolescence that this happens. Um, and so if a child is going to be able to, through their life experiences and through their biological development, form new understandings and comprehension of these events, then it allows them to work through it, to make sense of it, um, in new and different ways. It also doesn't hurt that young children's memories are, are fairly short, um, for a lot of things. Um, and so... That's what gives them that power. That being said, and this relates also back to what you and I were talking about earlier, um, it still behooves us to shield them from certain things. As best we can. Absolutely. Just because we have faith that overall they'll be able to recover from a particular episode, um, the exceptions to the rule are, 
either long-lasting trauma, so something that goes on for a very long time can, we know, can have a lifelong effect, and also a particularly acute, intense uh, visual trauma can be much harder to, um, to recover from. And so it obviously is good for parents to, to go with their instinct of protecting their children, but also to give us, a, I guess, to give parents a sense of, of calm that their kids will overall and by and large be able to sort of grow through this, make some sense of it, and not, uh, not to worry that they're going to be traumatized for life because of any of these single experiences that they that they're aware of right or that you know if something happens where i mean i we talked earlier uh, a couple of weeks ago when i was talking about the effects of hurricane sandy and we were seeing in kids that they might react overreact to something because they're quote what you say traumatized from a certain event and then their pencil their favorite pencil will break and they'll overreact and then people will say oh this is this is because of you know, Hurricane Sandy, because of what they experienced. Do you find that maybe maybe there's an underlying current after a child experiences a traumatic event that doesn't present itself right away, and then might it might come out later on? Absolutely. And, you know, on the one hand, we have to be uh, very cautious and conservative in the way we analyze what kids do. I, as I went through psych school, I remember more and more of my friends uh, not wanting to talk to me because they were always afraid I was analyzing what they right. were saying. And I, remembering everything that they would oh, say, too. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> right? Why do you pick chocolate ice cream? Um, but So we want to be careful that we don't overanalyze right. those, those things. However, there is an, a truth to the fact that kids are observing. As you mentioned, you know, your, your son in the car who, you, who was listening to the radio. You know whether whether he was showing it or not, right? And and kids do listen and they take in through all of their senses because they're learning. That's what they're doing at that point in their lives, and they don't always show what they've the reaction or the or the result of what they've learned right away. So you want to keep your eyes open for that, um, but also balance that with not jumping to conclusions and making a big deal out of it. Um, if your child seems to be able to to in general you know, move on and, and uh, go back to sort of a, nor- a sense of normalcy. One of the things that I know you've said is so important is communication. What do you say, and in a couple of minutes we'll get to, you know, the, the roots of how to communicate with different sets of age groups, different sets of children. What do you say to people who, I know we were talking earlier about shielding your child. What do you say to people who will believe that information is the key. If you have the information and you're armed with the information, then you can deflect any situation. So how much information is too much information? And in what situations is arming children with information appropriate? And in what situations might it not be? And how do you as an adult figure that out? Parents ask me that all the time. Um, It's a great question. And my rule of thumb is learn to watch the signs from your child uh, when they've had enough. So it starts actually, you know, in infancy. Um, Children, infants, go to sleep when they've been overloaded with stimuli. 
when there's too much going on, they shut down. And literally, they shut down. That happens to me, too. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it happens to us I all in very different ways. I go brain overload, and I need to shut down. It's too much. And so the way they shut down is by literally curling up and going to sleep. Right. And that's a warning sign for us as parents. There's too much happening here. Um, as kids get older, they may not do that. But what you then have to start watching for is what is the warning sign from my child? So as I said, you know, the child who who's wanted their parent to die and then was ready to get up and move on um, is a great example of that. Uh, I had one p- set of parents who were actually uh, starting to go through divorce and they wanted to know how to talk to their children about it. And they relayed to me one instance where the f- one of the parents, you know, said to the child, they had started talking about what divorce is and the child in the middle of the conversation said, so what's for dinner tonight? Right. I was going to say, please pass the chocolate cake. <laughs> Precisely. Yes. And that's the cue. Yeah. I'm an overload. It's right. too much for me. So you do want your children to know certain things and it's important. And I think that the sentiment of when you're armed with knowledge, you can deal with a lot is, is a, is a very accurate and, and, and a wonderful sentiment. And I think it is important. It's probably more important as adults because we do have to fend for ourselves as adults. And as kids, ideally children have the adults to help protect them and to help them respond and deal with things. But, um, Within the process of giving your children information, you want to attune yourself to your children's signs that they've had too much. And then you stop and you move on and you can pick up the conversation later. It's interesting. I read or heard in one of the reports coming out of Newtown that one of the teachers told the students there was a wild animal running through the building, something something of that nature. And mm. the kids thought, okay, there's a, I don't know, a wild dog or whatever. I don't know. I would imagine, you know, they're talking so much about the teachers and what they did. They just went on instinct. And I don't know if it was because they were prepared or because they went into automatic pilot or what it was, but certainly the children were not prepared for the crisis. And it was because of the adults' reaction and the way the adults handled the situation that maybe the kids could come out of this crisis, I don't know, stronger. I think what you're describing is actually two different pieces of the phenomenon. I think the reason, the question of the the training and the preparedness um, is probably more for the children than for the adults. Because as an adult, you know that you hear something, you're going to jump under the desk. Right. You know that you're going to run for the closest exit. Kids need, it's, it's practice, right? Practice becomes rote. And you want the kids to have almost like a, in my, in my practice, I often tell parents, training your kids is like training a dog. Kids are animals. And, and there's a truth to that. You want it to be an automatic, an autopilot, as you said, for the kids themselves. Right. Because they don't have the same sense, especially younger children, of logic, of what ought to be done. Um, because they don't have the accumulation of experiences that we have as adults. So the preparedness and all of that is really more, in my opinion, for the children than for the adults. The adults can read through what they're supposed to do. And then, as you said, I think that, that it, it appears from the reports coming out of Connecticut that a lot of the teachers went on absolute instinct. Yeah. Um, doing what they needed to do to protect the children, either physically, as the stories we've heard, or emotionally. Um 
you know, uh, there was one a story I heard where they, they took out crayons and had the kids just sit in, and they were in a little closet and they had them draw. And that was about giving them something normal to do. Right. Right. And something that would take their mind off this scary episode. So, you know, I think that ultimately at the end of the day, we as adults do rely on instinct. And, um, and most of the time it, it proves very helpful. Um, as opposed to, you know, as opposed to our kids who really need to be trained. We're sitting here with Dr. Alex Bailey, a licensed school and child clinical psychologist, talking about how to talk to your children about difficult things. And um, as we said earlier, one of your key points is communication. And you've said that we have to deal with different age groups in a different way. What are some of the strategies that you can share with us about how to talk about difficult situations, life-altering situations, big changes in life with three-year-olds and with 18-year-olds? What are some strategies that you can give us? So I think the strategies develop from an understanding of how their brains work. Um, And there are certain hallmarks of the way kids develop cognitively, how they think differently as they get older. So for instance, we know that, and we've talked about some of this over the last half hour or so, um, young children, three, four, five, six-year-olds have incredible imaginations. They'll make up stories. Um, In other words, they don't think logically in a sort of organized, ordinal way. Um, The other things that we know about little kids is they are incredibly, as we said at the beginning of the show, incredibly egocentric. Um, So talking to young children about how somebody else feels is often not going to have the effect um, that we want it to have. I, I've, I work with teachers, and uh, one of the, the rules that I often give them is you want to teach your kindergarten or your pre-K child to share. We don't explain sharing as, you know, if you share, it's a benevolent way of allowing people who don't have to be able to have also. We don't go there because these little kids, they don't get it. What we do is we say, well, if you want so-and-so to share with you, you've got to share with them. Right. We're relating it to them. That's the egocentric piece. Whereas if I'm talking to a 15 or a 16-year-old about why we're going out to do a chesed, why we're going out to do something good for somebody, and we did this a lot in the wake of Hurricane Sandy, um, I can explain that it's about people losing and we have the ability to give and, and what that means for somebody else. So that's one piece. That's the way that that development from an egocentric place to the ability to empathize um, is very important. The, you know, the other piece is the cause and effect. As we said, the young, young children don't understand cause and effect uh, intuitively. Right? They don't understand that when you do something, A leads to B leads to C. Whereas as soon as we get into sort of that second, third, fourth grade, seven, eight, nine, you know, ten year olds, they begin to understand the link between events, how one thing leads to another leads to another. And so, you know, uh, very often the question that comes across my desk is so-and-so, you know, a grandfather passed away. How do I talk to my children about that? Um, we can talk to a seven, eight, nine year old about how the body gets old, how things break down, and again, obviously, in, in an ideal situation where someone passes away from old age. Um, and they can understand that death results most of the time 
from a deterioration and from over time, whereas a young child won't get that. Um, and then you get into these adolescents who are much more, the hallmark of adolescence is abstract thinking. They can think about things that they don't have in front of them. So it's with a young child, I can only talk about stuff that they have experienced themselves yep. or that they're looking at. Um, it's why we do in school, right? We start doing hypotheses, right? Being able to guess what will happen. We don't do that with sort of first graders, but we do it in science class with third, fourth, fifth, you know, fifth grade is where we start. So teenagers now can really be abstract. So with them, the concept of death, you can talk about in a way that is more metaphysical where you can't do that with young children. So why do we say when we talk to young children, why do we say things like, you really hurt my feelings or you hurt this person's feelings? What's their understanding I, I of always, that? I always say, you know what? It doesn't hurt to expose children to these to the vocabulary. Right. Teach them the vocabulary so that when it becomes meaningful, they've got a running start. Yeah. So you can talk to that young child about sharing and say that it's nice to give to other people, but that won't be the motivation for them to share. Wow. So it's the same thing here, right? I You hurt my feelings. For young children, they don't quite get that. I, I had a father once say, you know, when my child, if I'm holding them and they pinch my cheek, I pinch their cheek back to show them how it feels. And there's a certain, I knew where his logic was coming from, right? Let the child experience. But that young, that two-year-old who was pinching his cheek wasn't making the connection between the two. So when we talk about you hurt my feelings with younger children, they're not getting that. They're not getting that as the motivation for change. If we can demonstrate sadness, you said that and now it makes me want to cry. You said that and, you know, then that becomes an emotion that they relate to and that they can respond to. Right. But I think that... Uh, I was going to ask you that, yeah. you know, as a follow-up that, well, just comment that it, they do understand sadness yes. in themselves. Y- yeah. Again, their understanding of sadness will differ from somebody else's, from your understanding of sadness. Um, but absolutely, you know, they can experience their experience of sadness is about, you know, not getting the chocolate chip cookie, right? Um, while your experience of sadness is, is larger and more nuanced. Yeah, right. But, so so you, then you, you moved on to adolescence. You started to talk about abstract thinking. Give me an example. With adolescence... Uh, not to put you on the spot or anything. No. <laughs> it's, this is my bread and butter. The, the adolescents are, are some of my favorite to work with uh, sometimes. <laughs> um, I think, look, you know... We're talking a lot about, you know, about death here, right? Um, but uh, it really comes up in any number of things. Um, let's say you have a birth. Let's look at it the other side. You have a baby coming. So with a young child, you don't even tell them of the impending birth because they can't abstract. They can't understand what yeah. it means, Yeah. right? And so... Um, it's the same thing. I'll tell, I'll tell parents who are going away on vacation that um, they shouldn't tell their young children that they're going away until right up close because the child doesn't understand it. So with birth, for instance, with a young child, you won't tell them um, about the birth until they can see mom is pregnant because right. that becomes real. 
flip it to the adolescent. With the adolescent, with a 13, 14-year-old, you can start to talk about what will it be like when the baby gets here? What changes will have to happen in the household? You can problem solve with them. One of the great things about working with teenagers is that you can engage in a problem-solving discussion with them. Young kids, you have to feed them. But with older kids, you can talk about it. So you can plan with your adolescent child what the changes will be like and what everybody's role will be because they can imagine it before it happens. With the trauma, if you come back to Connecticut, with young children, you have to talk about what they've seen and what they're experiencing in the moment. The concept of having memorials, um, coming up with ways of, of remembering. So you can speak with teenagers about the concept of memorializing somebody. What does it mean to remember somebody? Um, because that is dealing with something non-physical, non-tangible, non-concrete. Um, you know, it. you can see how this plays out in all sorts of life events. So what if you're moving to a new home? So with a real young kid, A, as we said, you don't even tell them you're moving until you start packing up because there's no benefit to it. Um, and then maybe what you'll do is move into that house and you'll set up their room first because they need to, we've all done it, yeah. right? Where our room is, you know, gets a mattress on the floor, yeah. but the little kid's room, the pictures are up and it's painted and it's done, you know, because that's something that they can hold and that they can touch. As you then move into that seven, eight, nine, ten 10-year-old, you can say, you know, you can start to explore the house together. You can say, well, which room do you think would be really neat to have your room? Um, how is this house different than our old house? It's still fairly concrete, but you're able to sort of get into a back and forth with them and engage them. With the oldest, with the teenagers, you can talk to them about why you're moving. You can ask for their involvement in planning the move, you know, to the degree that you want to trust their judgment. Right. Um, you can talk about what can be exciting and what can be scary about the move because these are all concepts. So we get conceptual. We move from the concrete and the tangible all the way through the stages up until we get to the, to the conceptual with the teenagers. And we have to really, the goal of, of the way that I deal with communication, you know, you said earlier that uh, communication is sort of my, uh, my specialty. It's what I love doing because I think that whether we're dealing with parents and children, siblings, spouses, uh, teachers and and parents teachers and their students the key to success in relationship is communication and we have to understand the hallmarks of communication once we do we can do anything so what do you do when your teenager shuts down when you get into uh you know you say something the wrong way and then you see that they're upset and you want to talk to them about it and they storm out of the room i'm not talking to you so that's so i ask you Right? What were we talking about before when we talked about um, overloading? Right? What are the signs in each of your children that they're overloaded? Well, when your child storms out of the room, they've had enough. Yeah. And so it's the parent who chases after that kid where the kid then ultimately comes through my door and says, my parent won't leave me alone. You know, yeah. they're, they, they, they hound me. So you've got your infant turning over and going to sleep. Your teenager is walking out of the room. And so what that means to us is we've got to stop. What's hard for parents is that we often feel 
I'm either threatened by that, my, either because my child was so chutzpahdik, how could they walk away? I was going to say, my, my right. issue with that is that it's very disrespectful. It's Correct. very disrespectful to walk out on your parent and say, I'm not talking about it. I'm not talking to you. So, so your instinct is to run after them and call them back and say, you get over here right now and you sit down and you talk to me. And so, you know, one of the things that I often differentiate for parents is the, the phrase I use is, can you differentiate what's normal from what's acceptable? And that's a key thing because understanding what's normal allows us to empathize and not get angry with the child. But just because it's normal doesn't mean I have to let it happen. So that proverbial, you know, the teenager comes through the door after school. Hi, honey, how was your day? You know, they grunt and go up to their room. That's normal. We Kids don't like to talk to their parents. We're different than them. Does that have to be acceptable that my child is allowed to grunt at me and go up to the room? No. But if I understand that it's normal, it gives me the empathy not to snap at them, punish them, and yell at them, which is in turn going to shut them down. It allows me to approach them from a place of non-threat and try to understand them and then later explain to them. It it gives the empathy, the understanding of their signals allows me not to react. And I think that the breakdown in communication between parents and teenagers and you could get me talking about teenagers all, <laughs> all day. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left anyway. But... Uh, would, you'd have to come back another time. Any time, I'd love to come back. We can do a whole a whole afternoon just on teenagers. Um, the key with with teenagers is being able to give them the space to sort of calm down, and then to approach them. And I think that what keeps a lot of parents from being able to do that is a nervousness. Yeah, is my child being chutzpahdik? But also, am I going to lose my kid? Right. You know, and knowing that ultimately, you know, the, the research that's been uh, all through the years, there was tons of worry about and research about rebellious kids. Teenagers are rebellious. They, they just want to throw off their shackles and go and do the opposite of everything you want. And in the last 15, maybe 20 years, the research on rebelliousness has found something profound. It's found that this feeling, this worry we have that kids are rebelling against us is a developmental stage that they're going through in terms of their own identity formation. And that what we see long-term is that ultimately teenagers grow up and come back to the values that they grew up with in their homes. And so the challenge for us as parents, whether we're dealing with these teenagers and the rebelliousness, or really whether we're dealing with our young children, is to be able to sit with the discomfort we have at the moment that joke about, you know, the kid who comes home from school. To sit with, uh-oh, how am I going to explain this to my child? To stop for a second. And that gives us the chance to have a perspective and ultimately, usually, respond in a much more positive way. Right. Which is so challenging as a parent. and Barry. <laughs> yeah, and and, and challenge, challenging for teachers as well. Yes. In the moment, you know, we feel threatened. We feel like maybe we're not doing the right thing. And automatically your brain goes to like 20 years from now. If I say the wrong thing now, they're going to hate me, you know, when they're, when they're 20. Absolutely. You know, and it's, and it's just not so. Um, the, you hope. 
<laughs> we hope one of the the other rules I give parents is I said you should fear the trends, don't fear the blips. We all say the wrong thing. We all do something that you know what, you know you smack your head and say, oh, I shouldn't have done it. Kids get over that, you know. Uh, what you worry about is the repeated patterns right. of behavior. Right. Right. And if you can hold yourself back from that. Your kids will deal with the blips and your relationships will be fine. So we should all send our kids to you and we should all come to you for a little, (laughs) for some parent-child communication. Anytime. Well, Dr. Bailey, thank you so much for for joining us today and for talking about some of these very challenging and very difficult topics. And we really appreciate your insights. And if anybody out there would like to ask Dr. Bailey a question or would like to make a comment, you can email me at randy at nachamsegel.com. And we look forward to hearing your comments. And uh, we hope that today we've given you something to talk about right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Let's give them something to talk about. Something to talk about. Let's give them something to talk about. Something to talk about. Let's give them something to talk about. <laughs>